Chapter Two of The Secret of the Silver Car by Wyndham Martin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anna Simon. Chapter Two The Man in the Dark. One day, late in October, when the Allies were moving with such speed against the enemy, Private Trent had been struck with a piece of shrapnel. There was the recognized noise of the flying fragments, and then a sudden flaming pain in his left arm followed by black unconsciousness. He came back very slowly to the realization that he was not seriously hurt. His wounded arm was bandaged. He was still rather weak and lay back for some moments before opening his eyes. Then he opened them to meet only a wall of unrelieved night. "'I'm blind,' he thought. Groping about him, he felt dank earth, the earth he had been accustomed to in the trenches slimy sweating clay with his undamaged hand he felt the bandages that were about his head there was no wound near his eyes but that would not be necessary for he had seen so many cases of blindness due to the bursting of high explosives it might be temporary blindness or it might be permanent there was a great silence about him gone were the myriad sounds of war that had enveloped him before his injury perhaps he was deaf too my god he groaned thinking of this new infliction and then grew a little less miserable when he recognized the sound of his own voice well blindness was enough never again to see the green earth or the morning sun stealing down the lake where his home was at a little past thirty to see only through the eyes of others no more golf no more hunting and fishing trips and of course no more of those taut-nerved nights when he, a single human being, pitted his strength and intelligence against the forces of organized society, and won. There was small consolation in thinking that now, at all events, Anthony Trent, master criminal, would not be caught. He would go down in police history as the most mysterious of those criminals who have set the detectives by the heels. A little later... He told himself he would rather be caught, sentenced to a term of life imprisonment, if only he might see a tiny ribbon of blue sky from his cell window, than condemned to this eternal blackness. Then the miracle happened. A few yards from him came a scratching sound, and then a sudden flame, and in that moment he could see the profile of a man bending over a cigarette. He was not blind. Who are you? Anthony Trent cried, not yet able to comprehend this lifting of what he felt was a sentence imposed. Where am I? The man who answered spoke with one of those cultivated English voices, which Trent had once believed to be the mark of decadence or effeminacy, a belief the bloody fields of France had swept from him. Well, said the man slowly, I really don't see that it matters much now to anyone what my name may be. The only thing that matters to me, Trent cried with almost hysterical fervor, is that I'm not blind as I thought I was. The answer of the unknown man was singular, but Trent, who was not far from hysteria on account of bodily pain and the mental anguish through which he had been, did not take notice of it. "'I don't think that matters much, either,' the voice of the man in the dark commented. "'Then where are we?' Trent demanded. 
"'There again I can't help you much,' the unknown answered. "'This was a common or garden dugout.' "'Was?' Trent repeated. "'What is it now?' "'A tomb,' the stranger told him, puffing at a cigarette. "'I found you bleeding to death, and I bandaged your arm. "'I was knocked out myself, and your man and mine had gone on.' and there was never a Red Cross man or anyone else in sight, so I carried you into this dugout. All of a sudden some damned H.E. blocked up the opening. When the dust settled I explored with my few matches. Our tomb is sealed up, absolutely. I often heard of it happening before. It looks as if a house had been lifted up and planted right on this dugout. "'So that's why you said it didn't matter much if I could see or not.' "'Does it?' the man asked shortly. "'Have you another match?' Trent asked presently. "'I'd like to explore.' "'No good,' the other retorted. "'I've been all around the damned place, and there isn't a chance, "'except that the thing may collapse and bury us.' "'Then we are to starve to death without an effort?' We shall asphyxiate. We shan't starve. Don't you notice how heavy the air is? Presently we shall get drowsy. Already I feel light-headed and inclined to talk. Then talk, Trent said. Anything is better than sitting here and waiting. The air is heavy. I notice it now. I suppose I'm going to be delirious. Talk, damn you, talk. Why not tell me your name? What difference can it make to you now? Are you afraid? Have you done things you're ashamed of? Why well, let that worry you, since it only proves you're human. I'm not ashamed of what I've done, the other drawled. It's my family which persists in saying I've disgraced it. Anthony Trent was in a strange mood. Ordinarily secretive to a degree, and fearful always of dropping a hint that might draw suspicion to his ways of life, he found himself laughing in a good-humoured way that this English soldier should imagine he must conceal his name for fear of disgrace. Why, the man was a child, a pygmy, compared with Anthony Trent. He'd perhaps disobeyed an autocrat father, or possibly married a chorus girl instead of a blue-blooded maiden. "'You've probably done nothing,' said Trent. "'It may be you were expelled from school or university, and that makes you think you're a desperate character.' There was silence for a moment or so. "'As it happens,' the unknown said, "'I was expelled from Harrow and kicked out of Trinity. "'But it isn't for that. "'I'm known in the army as Private William Smith of the 78th Battalion, "'City of London Regiment.' "'I thought you were an officer,' Trent said. "'Private Smith had the kind of voice which Trent associated with the aristocracy.' "'I'm just a plain private like you,' Smith said. "'Although the lowly rank is mine for probably far different reasons.' "'I'm not so sure of that,' Trent said, a trifle nettled. "'I could have had a commission if I wanted it.' "'I did have one,' Smith returned. "'But I didn't mean what I said offensively. "'I meant only that I dare not accept a commission.' Anthony Trent waited a moment before he answered. "'I am not so sure of that,' he said again. 
the reasons for which Trent declined his commission and thereby endured certain hardships, not unconnected with sleeping quarters and noisy companionship, were entirely to his credit. Always with the fear of exposure before his eyes, he did not want to place odium on the status of the American officer, as he would have done, had screaming headlines in the papers spoken of the capture by police authorities of Lieutenant Anthony Trent, the cleverest of modern crooks. But he could not bring himself to speak of this, even in his present unusual mood. "'It doesn't matter now very much,' Smith said, laughing a little. We shall both be called missing, and the prison camps will be searched for us. In the end, my family may revere my memory, and yours call you its chief glory. I haven't a family, Trent said. I used to be sorry for it. I'm glad now. He stopped suddenly. Do you know, he said later, you were laughing just now. You're either crazy or else you must have your nerve with you still. I may be crazy, returned Private Smith, but I usually make my living by having my nerve with me, as you call it. It has been my downfall. If I had been a good, moral child, amenable to discipline, I might have commanded a regiment instead of being a Tommy, and I might be repenting now. By the way, you don't seem as depressed as one might expect. Why? After a year of this war, one doesn't easily lose the habit of laughing at death. I've had four years of it, Smith said. I was a ranker when it broke out, and saw the whole show from August 1914. On the whole, what is coming will be a rest. I don't know how they manage these things in your country, but in England, when a man has been, well, call it unwise, there is always a chance of feeling a heavy hand on one's shoulder, and hearing a voice saying in one's ear, I arrest you in the king's name. Very dramatic and impressive and all that sort of thing, but wearing on the nerves, very. Private Smith laughed gently. I'm afraid you're dying in rather bad company. We have something in common, perhaps, Trent said. He grinned to himself in the covering blackness as he said it. "'Tell me, did you ever hear of Anthony Trent?' "'Never,' Private Smith returned quickly. "'Sorry. I suppose I ought to know all about him. What has he done?' "'He wrote stories of super-crookdom, for one thing.' "'That explains it,' Smith asserted. "'You see, those stories rather bore me.' I read them when I was young and innocent, but now I know how extremely fictional they are. Written, for the greater part, I am informed, by blameless women in boarding-houses. I like reading the real thing. What do you mean by that? Reports of actual crimes are set forth in newspapers, cross-examinations of witnesses and all that, summing up of the judges and coroner's inquests. Was this Trent person really good? "'You shall judge,' said the American. He wrote of crimes and criminals from what such actual practitioners had told him. He was for a time a police reporter on the big New York paper and had to hang around Mulberry Street. After that he tried the magazines, but as editors are so remote as a rule from actual knowledge of the world's play and work, he didn't make much money at it. 
Finally, his pet editor, a man with some human attributes, said in effect, I can't raise your rates, the publisher won't stand for it. If I paid decent prices, he couldn't buy champagne and entertain his favorites. This was in the era before prohibition. The human editor went on giving advice and wound up by saying, Why don't you do what your super crew character does and relieve the dishonest rich of their stolen bonds? Conway Parker gets away with it. Why shouldn't you? Of course he was rotting, Private Smith asked. Yes, the American said. He didn't really mean it, but the thought germs fell into the right sort of broth. Anthony Trent wasn't naturally a crook, but he hated having to live in a cheap boarding-house and eat badly cooked meals and play on a hard-mouthed, hard, upright piano. Some ancestor had dowered him with a love of beautiful things, rugs, pictures, pottery, bronzes, music, and a rather secluded life. Also, he had dreams about being a great composer. He was a queer mixture. On the whole, rather unbalanced, I suppose. His father died and left him almost nothing. All he could do was newspaper work at first. You mean he actually followed the editor's advice? Yes. He had certain natural gifts to aid him. He was a first-rate mimic. It's a sort of gift, I suppose. He'd gone in for amateur theatricals at his college and done rather well. He pulled off his first job successfully, but the butler saw him and did not forget. That was the trouble the butler remembered. It wasn't a big affair. It didn't make any such stir as, for example, as when he took the Mount Auburn ruby. I read of that, Smith returned eagerly. He knocked out a millionaire surrounded with detectives and got away in an airplane. He got away, but not in an airplane, replied Anthony Trent. On the whole, the unknown aviator was rather useful to him, but was absolutely blameless. Then there was the case of the Epthorpe Emerald. Did you hear of that? Haven't I told you, Smith returned impatiently, that I read all about things of that sort. How could I have missed that, even though I was in the trenches when it happened? It was the delight of my hospital life to read about it in Reynolds' journal. It was said a woman murdered old Apthorpe for it. She did, Trent admitted, and she took the emerald, but Anthony Trent got it from her and fooled them all. His last big job before the United States got into the war was getting the blue-white diamond that was known as the Nizam's diamond. A hundred carat stone, Smith said reverently. By Jove, what a master! As I never heard of him, of course he was never caught. They are all caught in the end, though. His day will come. For a moment, the thought that Anthony Trent's life was coming to an end before many hours had passed took the narrator from his mood of triumph into a state of depression. To have to give up everything and die in the darkness. Exit Anthony Trent for all time. And as he thought of his enemies to police, toiling for the rich rewards that they would never get for apprehending him, his black mood passed, and Smith heard him chuckle. "'They all get caught in the end,' Smith repeated. "'The best of them. The doctrine of averages is against them. Your Anthony Trent is one lone man fighting against so many. 
he may have the luck with him so far but there's only one end to it they got captain despard and he was a top-hole marauder they got our estimable charles peace and they electrocuted regan in your own country only last month and he was clever god knows i think i'd back your trent man against any single opponent but the odds are too great the pack will pull him down and break him up some day again private smith of the city of london regiment heard the man he had rescued from danger to present him with death laugh a curious triumphant laugh he had seen so much of war's terror that he supposed the man was going mad it would perhaps be a more merciful end no said the american anthony trent will never be discovered he will be the one great criminal who will escape to the confusion of the detectives of new york and london i am anthony trent End of chapter 2